Geico presents, oh, uh, not again, another voicemail from your roommate. Hey, man, so I was in a rush to get to work and I left the back door open. Could you shut it? I left it wide open. Uh, while you're there, could you also turn off the oven and all of the burners? <laughs> My mom never let me use the oven. I wonder why. <laughs> The GEICO Insurance Agency could help keep your personal property protected, like if it's your roommate's first time operating an oven. Visit GEICO.com to see how easy it is to switch and save on renter's insurance. Contour from Cox has all your favorites, all in one place. And with the Contour Remote, you can use your voice to find them on live TV, on demand, and streaming apps like Netflix, Prime Video, and more. See Cox.com for details. Art History Bay Briefs. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Corey. I'm Natalie. I'm Jen, and we are the Art History Babes. We have a baby episode for you today. For those of you who don't know, baby episodes are short, little, kind of to the point episodes that don't have any expletives. So you can use them in school. (laughs) (laughs) And around the children. Around the kiddos. Today, we're talking about Birth of Venus. Which just, it does have some uh, sexual, <laughs> sexual content. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll just take it easy with that, but we will talk about it. Yeah. Just in a, a very... Uh, I just realized I said you can play it in front of your kids, so I should probably tell people that is coming. Yeah, and then this is now going to speak it, to the level of your parenting. How much <laughs> do you talk to your kids about this stuff? We don't know. So um, turn and, back now. Or, like, do you want them to learn about sex through the art history, babes? We'll do it. We'll do it. You know? We'll do a Hot Takes Sex Ed episode. Oh, (laughs) man. When mommies and daddies love each other very much. (laughs) It'll be great. But, yeah, this painting, this painting's sexy. It's a sexy painting. Yeah. It's one of those that most people know about. So we (laughs) might as well... Get. Or have seen, at yeah, least. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a recognizable image, for sure. Should we start with some facts? Some facts. Here we go on the facts. Sandro Botticelli, born in 1445, was an Italian Renaissance painter. He belonged to the Florentine school, training in the workshop Fra Filippo Lippi, and eventually working under the patronage of Lorenzo de' Medici. He lived his entire life in the same neighborhood in Florence, which is, I just think it's cute. That is really cute. <laughs> he just liked his home. Wow. And that's nice. It's dangerous nowadays, but at the time, I'm sure it was adorable. Yeah. <laughs> he is known for painting mainly portraits and religious subjects. However, his mythological subjects, although few in number, are some of his most famous works. The Birth of Venus is often discussed with Botticelli's other large-scale mythological work, Primavera. Although they are not a pair, the paintings are significant because depictions of subjects from classical mythology on a very large scale were virtually unprecedented in Western art since classical antiquity. The size and prominence of a nude female figure in The Birth of Venus was also uncommon in the early Renaissance. We'll talk about that a little bit more a little later on. The work was commissioned for the home of Lorenzo di Pier Francesco de' Medici. Wow. Good job. (laughs) Thank you. 
you. And was meant to hang above a marital bed. Beautiful. Right? That's a, That seems like a nice spot. That's where I would want it. Right? So you know? big, though. How that, big was the bed? Hopefully very was, large. Yeah, humongous. <laughs> I, I really like to imagine a just huge, luscious bed with, <laughs> with Bertha Venus hanging I above mean, it. And if you're a, a Medici, you better have the most luscious bed. <laughs> right? I mean, they right? were wealthy. Do you think they called it like a Florentine king instead of a California king? Uh, oh, wow. Ooh. Probably. Probably. They Probably. should. <laughs> New goals. Get a Florentine king size bed. <laughs> With a Botticelli over the top. Dang. There we go. I'm going to start I'm gonna start visualizing that. Manifest that into my life. I know. I'm seeing it right now. <laughs> In the early Renaissance, painting on canvas wasn't really a thing. They were pretty much all about painting on panels. However, wood panel was susceptible to warp due to humidity and canvas started to become a more commonly used and often looked down upon medium. Birth of Venus is said to be the first work of its size painted on canvas in Tuscany. So let's take a closer look. I think we didn't quite throw out a date. We have a a date here. Circa 1484 to around 1486 is when we're dating this work. So in the middle, in the center, we are presented with the newly born goddess Venus. And she is nude and standing in a giant uh, scallop shell. On the left, she is flanked by the wind god Zephyr, who uh, blows at her. And the wind is shown by the lines that are radiating from his mouth. So he's in the air, and he also is carrying a young female who is also blowing, but less forcefully. They both have wings. So Vasari, who was a writer of art history, one of the earliest art historians, we could probably say. Yeah, he was like the, the, the OG, art, OG historian. art historian. Vasari was probably correct when he identified her as Aura, the personification of a light breeze, which I think mm. is very sweet. It's calming. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So in their joint effort, they're blowing Venus towards the shore. So what's the old story? She was- We'll, uh, we'll get there. Okay, We'll get there. (laughs) There's a story. There is a story, you guys. (laughs) So in their joint efforts, they are blowing Venus towards the shore. On the right is a female figure who appears to be floating slightly above the ground. And she's holding out a rich cloak to dress Venus when she reaches the shore. She's one of the three ore or hours. Uh, These are Greek minor goddesses of the seasons and of other divisions of time. And also, they are attendants of Venus. The floral decoration of her dress suggests that she is the Hora of Spring. So the subject is not strictly the birth of Venus. It's a title only given to the painting in the 19th century, though this was given as the subject by Vasari. But the next scene in her story where she arrives on land, blown by the wind, seems to be what we're actually seeing. The land probably represents either Scythera or Cyprus, both Mediterranean islands regarded by the Greeks as territories of Venus. Do you remember those great old Hollywood biographies like Van Gogh in Lust for Life or Michelangelo in The Agony and the Ecstasy? Now imagine the epic story of the baddest bad boy of the Baroque, Caravaggio. He was the centerpiece of our one of our earliest episodes. And now, Ken Mora is creating a new graphic novel that tells the tale of Caravaggio, how his art revived the dying church, 
how his ambition exposed his secret lover, and how his sword sealed their tragic fate. Now at kickstarter.com, you can help make this graphic novel a reality. Caravaggio, A Light Before the Darkness. Head over to kickstarter.com, search for Caravaggio, or we will have a link in our show notes where you can support Caravaggio, A Light Before the Darkness. So the story, let's get to it. The mythology. In mythology, Venus, or Aphrodite to the Greeks, Venus to the Romans, was born on the island of Paphos. As it goes, Uranus and Gaia had a son named Kronos, or Kronos, or Kronos, I'm going to say Kronos. Uranus and Gaia got into a heated debate, and Gaia gave Kronos a sickle, a la the Grim Reaper, just to give you a visual, with which to attack his father. Kronos castrated Uranus and threw his genitalia into the sea. Brutal. Yeah, right? It's pretty rough. Yeah, talk about Oedipus complex. (laughs) According to mythology, the testicles and the sea foam mix together to produce the goddess of love and beauty who emerges from the foam as a fully formed woman. In reference to Botticelli's depiction of the scene, this, had led su- this has led some to believe that the seashell that Venus is riding to shore upon represents a vagina. Ah. Yes. Yes. Because she is being birthed from it. Mm-hmm. And Get it? Yeah. <laughs> Birth. Birth of Venus. <laughs> she is being birthed. Yes. From this symbol. But wow. while that was a visual choice of Botticelli, it is worth mentioning that Venus was not conceived naturally by a man and a woman, but by a man and nature, and we should probably talk about that a little, is it parallels the same, because in the same way, there's, <laughs> a, there's a meowing cat. <laughs> just Hi, kitten. Wanting attention real bad. I love you. Oh, is this Wheezy? Yeah. It's a fat kitten. She's, She's large. <laughs> Always. Okay. <laughs> She's my favorite shape. She's an absolute <laughs> unit. Yeah, she's, she she's really her own is. shape. She really is an absolute unit. <laughs> I'm in awe at the size of her. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> she might just, you know, be done. I don't know. <laughs> she's never done. <laughs> Let's just keep going and see what she decides If you want to wanna see mm-hmm. what she looks like, um, make sure to watch this episode on our YouTube channel. We'll throw in some footage oh, of, gosh, yeah. <laughs> of Wheezy for you. I'm sure she'll work it for the camera. Yeah, so in the same way that Jesus Christ was con- was conceived purely and without the need for heterosexual sex, which if you're going to get into like religion and stuff is impure, so it's a yeah. no-no. It's, yeah. it's just no it's, good. It's sticky. It's a <laughs> sticky topic. So, the major the major difference though between the birth of Venus and the birth of Christ is that a human man was not needed for the conception of Christ and a human female was not needed for the conception or creation of Venus because at least Mary brought Christ to birth. You know what I mean? He, she carried right, him. Right. Whereas there's no woman involved at all in the creation of Venus. It's man mm. and nature and then produces the God of love. So what does it mean if the ultimate symbol of kind of sex, love, fertility is made sans woman? Oh my God, I have some thoughts. I do too, because I feel like also, you know, nature is is often considered like a divine feminine force. Mm -hmm. You know, nature Mm -hmm. and the feminine are related a lot throughout history. Mm -hmm. So I think it could be looked at as just like a bigger representation of woman, but it could also be looked at 
through the lens of the patriarchy. Which is the <laughs> lens that thinking. it was invented in. Yeah. So we should probably. I think it could be a little bit of both depending. Because I, I, I think that that story has, has some interesting layers. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I want to think of it in the first way that you mentioned as, as nature being the divine feminine. But I'm also highly just prone to believe that this idea of like removing sexuality from women and making it a male created thing yes is just like it's the ultimate power move that, that they is, can pull that's just patriarchy 101 i agree 100 and i think you're right but i do like that i think this image can be looked at in a mm-hmm. in a more empowering way if you want to like examine it that way but I agree in the context of just the myth and the con like what I know about Greek mythology and how they weren't big fans of women like it it does sound very patriarchal yeah and we should specify that when we're talking about the misogynist bend to this story we're talking about the mythology not Botticelli necessarily we don't know what his thoughts were and he didn't invent the story he's just representing it Mm -hmm. and there's claims that he was using more contemporary poem as his inspiration for the visuals versus the original mythology and that I think is just a good thing to remember about ancient mythology in general is like there are a lot of different ways to look at a lot of these stories Mm -hmm. and like you know were examined through various lenses throughout the entire course of human history and have taken on new meanings so like yeah I you definitely can't say that that this is Botticelli's viewpoint but I yeah there's definitely there's definitely a statement being made with that myth like I think that is fair to say yeah Oh, the wasp is back. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. So many interruptions. <laughs> There's a wasp. So we're attempting to... Should we to take our re- break now instead? Yeah, we're going to take well, a break. We're going to take our break a little early. We're going to take a quick break and deal with this. Yeah. All right, bye. Bye. <laughs> As we watch the suburban garden gnome carefully, carefully without disturbing it, we notice that it moves like not at all. It's inanimate and utterly without brain function, but... Despite that, when a garden gnome hears about how Geico not only saves people money, but also gives them access to licensed agents 24-7 online and over the phone, it's clear to them you should switch. Because yes, switching to Geico is a no-brainer. But on second thoughts, maybe don't watch garden gnomes too carefully. People might talk. We have returned. We uh, took took care of the situation. (laughs) We We hope. We we didn't see the body, but we did... (laughs) You know, spray ourselves with a cloud of raid. So. <laughs> We're just sitting in a cloud of chemicals. It's fine. It's fine. We're fine. <laughs> um, anyways, back to Birth of Venus. So uh, the work was was kind of like controversial back in Renaissance times. When it was first painted, it was controversial, not because it was a naked lady, but because it was a naked lady in a non-Christian context. So, in the Western art of the Middle Ages and early Renaissance, figures were only painted in the nude to promote a Christian teaching of some sort. For example, scenes of Adam and Eve's impure naked bodies being dispelled from the Garden of Eden because of all of their impure impurity. Not only was the story in Birth of Venus from a classical non-Christian mythology, but this is an image that kind of seems to like celebrate or idealize nudity in some sense. And people didn't really know what to do with that. Right. This idea of nudity and appreciation for the female body outside of any sort of... I think 
from what I've heard, that the the loophole to this problem of not being able to show nude women was kind of using classical mythology as your, you know, excuse, rationale, whatever you want to call it. That makes sense. But men could have this these paintings in their studies a lot of times so this one we're talking about was made for a bedroom but for a lot of the other paintings of nude women especially those representing classical mythology they were for men's studies because they are supposed to symbolize like wisdom or beauty or (laughs) the higher pursuits of course Um, (laughs) the the higher pursuits Uh, (laughs) if you study the high pursuits you get to gaze upon nude women yeah so we're not exactly sure what Botticelli's ideas of women or sexuality were but we do know that later on in life his religious views took a sharp turn so in the last years of his life his work became overtly religious and he became a follower of a fanatical Christian preacher some have suggested that he rejected his early work such as the birth of Venus there's even claims that Botticelli threw some of his works into a bonfire of the vanities the bonfire of the vanities the bonfire of the vanities. So, so for those of you who don't know, the Bonfire of the Vanities was a mass burning of objects such as art, jewelry, mirrors, vanities, if you will. And this was all instigated by the Dominican friar. Let me see about this pronunciation. <laughs> um, Girolamo or Girolamo? Girolamo, Girolamo Savanarola. Savanarola is how you say his last name. I don't remember how to say his first name. Girolamo. Girol- I, I really don't remember his first name at all. Girolamo Savanarola is how you say it. There we go. There we go. Um, and this all went down on February 7th, 1497. And so the idea was that these objects promoted sin and took glory away from God. Somehow, despite the controversy surrounding it, Birth of Venus was spared. Wow. Wow. Didn't get burnt up with all the rest of the vanities. For real. It was too big. It would have been such a hassle. It would have been a whole thing. It really would have. I mean, I'm sure that Medici owning it had nothing to do with it. (laughs) Probably not. So after his death, Botticelli's paintings kind of fell out of favor for a while until the 19th century. And even then, Primavera was his best known work. Birth of Venus was not nearly as popular. Interestingly, the Birth of Venus became well known due to a series of traveling exhibitions to celebrate the old Italian masters, which was organized by none other than Mussolini. Hmm. That's peculiar. Because, you know, Mussolini's got to come into the story somehow. <laughs> somehow. <laughs> I was just waiting for you to mention Mussolini. Everyone was. <laughs> you can all breathe now. The exhibitions were planned for political gain, but this work by Botticelli was selected for more practical purposes. So like Corey had mentioned earlier, it was painted on canvas, unlike Primavera, which was painted on wood. And canvas is a lot easier to transport without fear of serious damage like warping or cracking the wood. The painting was extremely well received in London, Paris, and at the 1935 San Francisco's World Fair. And then five years later, it brought a whopping 290,000 people to New York's MoMA in a 74-day period. Wow. All right. All right. All yeah. right. Versa Venus, you guys, have you all seen it? Yes. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it in person. So it's at the Uffizi. And it is very stunning to see in person. Definitely should if you the get the opportunity. The is just... Yeah. It's huge. And Did we talk about six by nine feet? I don't know if we ever actually mentioned the exact 
it's, dimension. It's a big painting. Yeah, six feet by nine feet, guys. So you're kind of immersed in into this image. But what was particularly interesting to me, so when visiting the Uffizi in Florence, I noticed that the institution provides a tactile version of the painting for visitors with impaired vision. And this, I thought that was just super cool when I yeah. saw it. I was like, that's amazing. And then caused me to look into it a little bit more. And apparently the Uffizi offers an entire Uffizi by touch tour that includes what? a map and descriptions of many works in braille and the tour includes several statues many of which belonged to the medici collection and visitors are given special gloves and they are actually allowed to touch the actual sculptures not reproductions that is so cool right and so they get to actually have this very like immersive experience with the artwork Um, and then the birth of venus is basically the experience of the birth of venus on this tour is a, a smaller relief style sculpture of the painting that is located in front of where the painting hangs mm-hmm. so so yeah it's kind of creating a relief experience of the painting so all around just just a cool thing yeah that is so awesome i, I love that right the uffizi, i would have never even thought about that right yeah the uffizi is just a great museum in general and i love that this painting stayed in florence yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. <laughs> just just oh. like Botticelli. Oh. Just like oh. it's Papa. It's oh. how it's how old bots would have liked it. <laughs> Papa bots. <laughs> Papa bots. <laughs> that's that's what we call him. Yeah. In in our circle, that's what we're allowed to call him that. Pop bot. Pa- <laughs> old daddy bots. <laughs> Oh, oh man. All right. So let's do just a little a little visual analysis. Let's look at the painting and think about some things, okay. you guys, because that's what all good art historians do, right? I love it. <laughs> so we're looking at it. I think the first thing that we can discuss a little bit, and this is an issue that pops into a lot of Venus images, is kind of the impossibility of the pose. She would fall over. Like, she would straight fall over. Right. Like, no, one, no one's body can actually stand this way. I feel like it's an attempt at a very, like, feminine... <laughs> Nat is trying to do it right now. <laughs> it's... I mean, but your foot would have to be... Yeah, I don't know, girl. Yeah. yeah and, it's, it's a lot. And, uh, like, because I feel like if you look at the feet, it looks as though her weight is is on this foot, but the way her upper body is, it's not pushing that way. You know what I mean? So I feel like the weight is not. Right. And here's the thing about these works. And we see it a lot later in like romantic sort of paintings, like the Grand Odalisque. Mm-hmm. You know how her body doesn't make any sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. This <laughs> sort of notion of a feminine body that couldn't really exist in real life. No one is appreciating these forms for like would she actually be able to stand you yeah know what yeah I mean? yeah <laughs> yeah and it's like an awkward kind of kind of trying to be contrapposto yeah but exactly not. we're and, not quite there yet and I, it, I feel like it's a feminized ideal attempt at a contrapposto yeah and it's i think this is one of those situations where not necessarily having access to female models live models uh they're working from multiple sources that are Mm -hmm. not exact references male bodies a lot of times and then kind of trying to add boobs later or like add curves which was totally a thing well i think that they get a little bit better at this into like high renaissance but even like leonardo da vinci has a lot where if you look it's like 
a jacked man and then just little boobs like it in and <laughs> well, not okay. trying to like act like you know obviously women come in all shapes and sizes but the to the point that you are like he he painted a man no no then, but we, we i think that we can say with a level of certainty that those were men yes exactly <laughs> they were yeah not yeah. trying to like Right. Talk about women's bodies that way. Like, it straight up was a male model right. that he then he later tried to I convert. I don't know if Da Vinci ever saw a nude woman. I don't know that there's any evidence he ever did. I'm serious. <laughs> I really, I really straight up had an did. art history professor <laughs> who made it seem that he never would have. And that this that was kind of common. Interesting. That's very interesting. Ah, yes. Ah, yes, ah, yes. What else do we have here? Um, So the detailing, I think, the decorative detailing elements of this painting is, I mean, is just widely talked about and is also. So I think what kind of sets it apart, what makes it even more beautiful has kind of helped to make it the masterpiece that it is. You have first you have the fabrics, which have these like beautiful decorative patterns mm-hmm. on the fabrics, which mm-hmm. is very interesting. Billowing. There's a lot of billowing. There is a lot of billowing happening. You also have like the gold detailing in her like in her hair and in the shell. Mm-hmm. Which is just like a very, I think, striking detail. Yeah. Well, and he, he's almost famous for this hair color, right? This like, it's yeah. like a black, it's like a Botticelli red. Yeah, like this. it's a reddish, blondish. Yeah, like, this copper-headed. It's beautiful. Uh, I hair mean, look, color. all the women have it. It's he. He kind of coined it. Wow, idea, art history, babes, hair dye line, Botticelli <laughs> oh. red. Oh, there it is. <laughs> Ooh, there's probably so many more good ones oh yeah stay tuned stay tuned um what i really love about this painting so this is so early renaissance to me this is such a quintessential work because i really feel like this whole idea of space isn't Mm-hmm. really fleshed out yet yeah you know? yeah yeah so and so there's very shallow space in this work and you can tell they're, they're kind of trying to to have a, a level of of space you see like the very thin strip of land that's supposed to be very far away behind the body of venus however you know we're not seeing any kind of atmospheric perspective at mm-hmm. this point although it did exist botticelli just wasn't utilizing it yeah, he's almost like uh, the like where Renaissance naturalism and mannerism kind of meet. Yeah, where he's doing a little bit of both. He's trying to be natural at points, mm-hmm. and I think overall it reads as a little bit more naturalism or right, whatever like, you would like to call it. But it definitely has those manners qualities of like the elongated. Going back to the bodies, like mm. the kind of elongated arms and legs, and mm-hmm. like where's that bone? And <laughs> right. I also really like this sort of scalloped wave pattern. Like yeah, the yeah, waves would at that. never look like yeah. that. You know, yeah. like you get the suggestion of wave. There the, are waves happening. The idea <laughs> of waves. Yeah. Um, so that's, I like that a lot. And yeah, I feel like Nat really hit it on the head sort of where mannerism and realism meet yeah, yeah especially now i'm like looking at her neck and like the way that her neck is kind right of like what's up with that neck yeah and at an interesting angle like that's that's mannerism mm-hmm. beginning mm-hmm. definitely mm-hmm. i think yeah wow <laughs> so so this painting is often considered a pinnacle of beauty it is often used as a beauty standard to which other objects of beauty from various time periods have been compared. It has also widely been subverted as a means of commentary on beauty standards. Lots of, so lots of heavy things there. So basically, like, 
why do we love it? Why do we love this painting so much? And in what ways do you guys consider this painting to be representative of beauty? Just kind of cutting back to what we were just talking about, like the elongated features and that kind of thing is already where my eyes are starting to like roll to the back of my head about why (laughs) we would consider that to be an ideal of beauty nowadays is like we are much in the era of um, and it's been I mean, it's been popular for a while, so I'm not trying to put it all on the 21st century by any means. But I think the reason it's still in favor is we're all about almost this unattainable beauty that is now attainable via Mm -hmm. things like plastic surgery and all of that yeah i totally agree like corsets are back that's crazy yeah yeah i yeah. think when it comes to exactly like the feminine image i think they're really complicated yeah the whole just the whole idealized woman beauty standards thing i don't know at this point it's like are we done with this yet you know I think we're getting there um however yeah. i do want to kind of mention going back to what i was saying before i do think there are things about this painting that are a little bit more of like an objective beauty thing like I was saying like the decorative patterning and stuff they're like humans are inherently attracted to patterning that's why decorative patterns are just they're naturally appealing to the human mind you know so I think there are elements this painting that are in some way representative of what humans find beautiful but then I think when you're thinking more in terms of the body figures and the human beings being represented I think that is more of this like yeah idealized creation of beauty that we've created does that make sense Mm -hmm. and it fits because she's being created in this scene like and she's the goddess of beauty so I mean just in the storyline and the title and everything we just already are thinking of the epitome of quote unquote beauty yeah I mean and she is beautiful I mean if we break it down you know if let's just say we're talking from a western point of view in considering uh, what's traditionally beautiful from what I can tell a symmetrical face Mm -hmm. long flowing hair there's a lot of flowing in the wind (laughs) many flowing there's elements flowing you know (laughs) this color used to be all the rage back when they would like try and lighten their hair with I love it. Chemicals. It's such a good color. <laughs> like we don't do that now. I'm I talking know. about it Back like this is such an ancient practice. <laughs> Back when they used to do that. You know, <laughs> I mean, she's she has uh there's evidence of like a muscularness, but it's very much concealed by a lot of soft mm-hmm. angles. It's very soft. She's so soft in fact that her <laughs> shoulders How soft is she? <laughs> her shoulders make no, no sense. sense anatomically. Yeah. What is going on with that, this arm? That, that is, is it has Quite to follow the wave of her hair. Apparently. Yeah, exactly. The arm. There's no real bones in that arm, and so these things to us sound so ridiculous. But when we, if we are thinking of what's considered beautiful in a Western male gaze-dominated sort of discourse of beauty, then she's the epitome. Her. I. I she, also you know, think there's something to just the way the mind perceives like flowing and smooth line as opposed to because like yeah this arm makes no sense but it's also just following like a curve Mm -hmm. and so she doesn't look like when you look at it and think about it logically it all of a sudden it looks very weird but I think on first glance you just see a smooth line you know what I mean yeah and you know what I love about this is I'm thinking like 400 years later when Manet came out with Olympia Mm -hmm. and everyone was losing their minds because you were seeing an anatomic 
anatomically sound structure of a woman's body. And there was a sharpness to her. And she like, was sharp and people were very upset. So and they could and, recognize who she was. Yeah, right. And her they knew her class and Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. was a lot. So, you know, we're talking this is a safe woman. She's got no bones. <laughs> She's not real. She's not real. I mean, not only is she Venus, but I mean, who is she really? I yeah. mean, she could be anybody. These are pretty standard, generic features of a pretty face. She's just something for you to project your Absolutely. idealized visions. And for onto. many, that is really the epitome of, of beauty. So yeah. for the time, for the purpose I think that this is an excellent work of art because it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. yes. Yeah. I think, yeah, I, I think within the context, it's, yeah, especially at a time where, yeah, you're just trying to achieve beauty with art a lot of the time like that. I do think that he was, yeah, doing what he was supposed to do do but i do think this work continues to be interesting because of everything that's come from it Mm -hmm. and the fact that we can subvert this image and we can think about this image in different ways yeah definitely and it has been as we saw at the louvre even like there it's everywhere and they don't even have it or was that primavera i think that the louvre has primavera because isn't or does the uffizi have both no oh Mm. Mm. it might mystery i don't know i don't know where the primavera is we don't know right at this moment, <laughs> but we do know that the birth of Venus exists at the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. And if you ever have a chance, check it out, man. Go see it. I mean, go see her know. and her boneless yeah. existence. So Primavera no is also at the Uffizi. Uh, but I swear to you that the Louvre uses the image of the birth of Venus as I marketing. Could see that. I think I could it's see all that. over the Louvre. I have such a distinct memory. I feel like birth of Venus is another one of those. Those big images similar to the Mona Lisa that just gets thrown on everything to represent art to be like it's art yeah birth of Venus it's art you yeah know? so I think that image does get used all over the place but yeah birth of Venus it's a painting <laughs> check it out check it it's out a big painting it's a beautiful painting it's an interesting painting yeah there's a lot to talk about yeah. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you want to see our faces while we talked about all this and look at some images of the stuff we talked about, head over to our YouTube channel where this episode will be posted. And, you know, check out our other stuff. Email us. Follow us on social media. All the things. Y'all. I forgot we were are um, awesome. recording this. Yeah. Like on. Right there. I forgot. Hello. Hi. <laughs> okay. Check us all out. Follow us on everything. And uh, we love you. Bye. Bye. From Of Fra Philippe Philippe Philippo? Yes. <laughs> Philippo. <laughs> <laughs> The Art History Babes podcast is made possible by support from our lovely listeners via Patreon. Head over to patreon.com slash arthistorybabes to help keep the Art History Babes going and for access to bonus content. Geico presents, oh, not again, another voicemail from your roommate. 
Hey man, so I was in a rush to get to work and I left the back door open. Could you shut it? I left it wide open. Uh, while you're there, could you also turn off the oven? And all of the burners. <laughs> My mom never let me use the oven. I wonder why. <laughs> the Geico Insurance Agency could help keep your personal property protected. Like if it's your roommate's first time operating an oven. Visit Geico.com to see how easy it is to switch and save on renter's insurance.